Welcome to the Climate Tech Talks. I'm your host, David Contreras, an energy professional with over 12 years of experience in the sector. We will explore in this series, along with CEOs, founders, and the leaders in the clean and climate tech sector, the different pathways and technologies that will drive society towards a net zero future. Please join us. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not reflect the opinion of my current employer, TES. In this first episode, you will hear from David Hunt, CEO and founder of Hyperion Executive Search. He's also a prolific podcaster, the host of Leaders in Cleantech. You will hear his origin story, how he became a solo entrepreneur, and how, in his current role, he and his team have helped startups like Sonnen and Linejump become household names. It was a great conversation about entrepreneurship, and I hope you enjoy it too. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. And today we have a very special guest. Uh, his name is David Hunt, who has plenty of experience in the executive search um, sector and lately within the climate tech. So I'm inviting David to have a conversation, open discussion about his thoughts about leadership, about the investment climate uh, in Europe and in the UK. So welcome, David, to, to the podcast. Thank you, David. It's, uh, it's great to join you uh, on, the, on this new venture. Yeah, thank you. No, it's quite exciting for me. Uh, I'm a big fan of what you've been doing uh, for those of of you, of our listeners that don't know David Hunt, he's uh, quite a prolific podcaster. So my last count, David, you've recorded around 65, 60 something podcasts. Is that correct? It is. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's been, uh, it's going well. So I think we'll hopefully end the year just on 66 and then uh, already have some, some good guests planned for the start of next year. So uh, it's, uh, I shall soon find out it's, uh, it's, it's great fun. But also, it does take some commitment. Um, but you learn so much from everybody you speak to, which is uh, which is awesome. Absolutely, I think that, that that's part of the motivation for this podcast is you know if intellectual curiosity and just look at what's going on in in the energy sector and how it's transforming and all this new momentum that we're seeing. Uh, so let's start from the beginning. You know, likely as you as you do usually in your podcast. Um, I, I would like to understand your kind of your journey, how did you start it? I know that you, you have a quite a lot of experience in in the executive search domain, but how do you make that transition? I don't know if you can tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I, I'm happy to do so. So I guess it actually came about by a very happy coincidence. I'd spent 16, 17 years in international executive search in a range of different technologies from semiconductors to telecommunications to HVAC and building services, all technical environments and all interesting to an extent, but not super exciting. And and, and I, after a while, I, I got a little bored. Um, and via, as I say, via some very strange coincidences, it was a, a conversation with a friend whose daughter was in my daughter's class at school. So a random conversation, we started talking about solar power and wind turbines. And at that time, this is in 2007, I didn't know anything about those things. Um, but it stimulated a thought in my mind. And I went away and did some research, particularly looking at the Energiewende in, in Germany and uh, how uh, solar was starting to be rolled out in particular. And uh, just 
thought that it was uh, you know incredible that w- there was this way that we could generate a more sustainable way of powering our lives of living our lives um always having had a sort of a i guess a feeling for nature and the uh, and the natural world and um through my researches I, I i figured actually maybe there is some some business opportunities here and the first thing i did was along with the the, the guy i mentioned who, who whose daughter is in my class we started a solar business in the uk in back end of 2007 when uh even my friends laughed at me when I talked about uh, solar panels uh, and generating energy this way because um, a lot has changed in these 12, 13 years. But we built that business to about 52 employees, six and a half million revenues, and, and became one of the leading uh, solar installers for residential and commercial in the UK. And um, I, I even further fell in love with the capabilities of clean technology. But what I missed was aspects of people and leadership and uh, the, the, the human side of technology. So I decided in 2014 to create Hyperion Executive Search, uh, which is a search firm, but we work exclusively, as you know, within clean technologies. That's renewable technology, uh, electric mobility, energy storage, hydrogen, anything that falls under the clean technology umbrella. Um, so that's a, a kind of a very quick snapshot of how I, I moved from a headhunter to a solar entrepreneur and now back into a, a headhunter, but purely for, for the clean tech sector. Very interesting. So going back to, to that kind of first um, founder story, because you co-founded that uh, renewable energy installer uh, company. Uh, yeah. So th- that lasted until 2014. Uh you sort of hinted at it, but how was the market back then in, in terms of solar in the UK? And ha- have you seen that evolving in the last couple of years? And what happened in that junction in 2014 when you decided, well, maybe actually I should uh, explore something else. And that's when you co-founded or you founded Hyperion. But yeah, if you can Give us some hints about what, how was that train of thought? Sure, yeah. Of course, it was a, a very different market now. And even though 12 years doesn't sound some ways a, a long period of time within the sector, a, an awful lot has changed. So when we first started the business, there was zero subsidy or support uh, for the installation of solar. And the product was significantly, you know, four, five, six, ten times more expensive then than, than it is now. So it was quite tough. And most of our customers were quite committed greens, if you like, or hippies with some money, essentially, who wanted to, um, you know, make their own homes, their own properties, their own businesses uh, more self-sufficient. So it was very challenging. But then I guess it was both a blessing and a curse. We started to see across Europe and in the UK feeding tariffs or generation tariffs of various different descriptions. And uh, and people essentially became subsidized to, to, to install solar. So... Um, this, of course, was a, a big boost to the business and helped us to scale and, and, and brought many new people into the market, some less ethical than, the, than others. Um, but also those policy changes uh, across the world, and in particular in the UK, were um, there was a lot of change with the policies and, and, and it was very disruptive. So, for example, you would have a lot of peaks and troughs where there was a um, a cut to the subsidy. So there'd be a big rush prior to that cut taking place and, and significant business. So then after the cut, there would be a, a real lack of business. So it became very difficult to manage that uh, up and down process and to 
um, particularly when you had your own team of 50 plus employees who clearly needed to be paid every month. And, and there was uh, this kind of boom and bust being led by incoherent policies uh, from the UK government. And so that made it very challenging. And that was one of the reasons that I, I started to feel um, yeah, a little bit uncomfortable. And, and two of the directors that, that founded the business carried on the business for, for a period of time. And uh, as I say, I, I decided at that point to leave to do something which I guess is really in my blood, which is uh, helping companies to scale through the acquisition of, of key talent, um, but still with uh, the passion for clean energy, uh, which of course then very much expanded beyond purely solar into many other areas of, uh, of clean technology. So I guess we can say that that experience founding and being right within the, the solar uh, environment really pushed you towards towards that, be, being part of that revolution that was happening in, in, I guess, building companies and bringing new solutions in terms of yeah, yeah. Uh, energy efficiency, etc. Yeah, no, absolutely. It was a real learning curve because I had started a, a, a um, you know been involved in early stage businesses previously but the lessons I learned both you know from the mistakes we made as well as the successes we had during that period of time were hugely valuable to to me subsequently but also when I started to work and whilst we work in clean tech we, we, we certainly have a focus on the, the startup and scale up size of companies so I, I immediately had an affinity with other founders because I know the challenges I know that I'd experienced both the highs and lows and the the ups and downs of, uh, of founding a business so uh, immediately there was both uh, a connection because of the technology but also a connection because of uh, those experiences absolutely no i, I can imagine that the ent entrepreneurial roller coaster of building and racing uh, you know exactly. the, the funds necessary to, to you know grow and scale up um, so that brings me to 2014 so so you created hyperion can you, you know, maybe the, the elevator pitch of Hyperion? <laughs> so, who are you serving? Uh, who are your main clients? Um, how big is the company now? Uh, and what sort of markets are you are you working at at the moment? Sure, you know, ha happy to do so. So, at Hyperion, we work with some of the world's most innovative clean technology companies, bringing breakthrough technologies to market, and we help them to scale by by helping to find the key talent they need to do so. Usually that's either at the C-suite, you know, CEO, CXO, uh, C CFO level, uh, but also in the really hard to find senior to mid-tier engineering, commercial, sales, operational uh, leaders uh, for businesses. And um, they, they typically, when we start working with the company, they're typically quite small, uh, sometimes four, five, six people, probably the maximum would be 40, 50 people. Um, Clearly, after a period of time, the sector has grown so much. A, a, a couple of good examples, maybe that you know your listeners may have heard of, would be Zonen, which is a, a German manufacturer of residential energy storage systems. We started working with those guys when there were thirty people based out of uh, just outside of Munich, and um, uh, last year they were acquired uh, by Shell for, although it's not disclosed, I, I, I would guess around half a billion. Nice one. So that was quite a quite a journey to be uh, supporting uh, Christoph Osterman. Yeah, at the, the the team there, 
Um, and on EV charging infrastructure, a good example would be EVbox, which was a, a 25 person a small company based in Amsterdam serving just the, the Dutch market. And uh, we started to work with them to build their teams in the UK and Germany and elsewhere. And now they, they were acquired by Angie and they're the, the French utility company. And now they are, you know, massive global and perhaps one of the biggest players in that market uh, globally. So it's really cool for us to be involved with those young companies who are about to really scale and to support them in those early stages before they have big HR departments or internal recruit, recruiting departments to be able to help them to find the real key um, hires that are going to help them to the next level. So, um, and nowadays we work with a lot of VCs, a lot of companies who are backed by, um, for example, Breakthrough Energy Ventures, which is a big fund uh, um, in the US, an operation in Europe as well, funded by Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and a number of super wealthy individuals who put together this pot of money to invest in technologies which are going to take a little while to come to fruition. But when they do, they'll be truly game-changing. So we have clients like Malta Incorporated and uh, uh, Quidnet, uh, companies who are doing long-duration energy storage and uh, really innovative and, and, and you know still far from having a, a product, but really have a great um, ability to impact the world once they evolve. And we've been you know, supporting them to hire the people they need to evolve their product and their offering. And uh, that's, I guess, a good example of, of the types of companies we work with. We, we do work with a couple of big corporates and uh, when they're opening new clean technology businesses, for example, Energy, uh, the, the the German utility company, were expanding into e-mobility, and we helped to build a team for them in the UK. Um, but the majority of our customers are and clients are the startups themselves and the VCs that support them. So, uh, are they mostly based in because uh, the examples that you you've given us uh, are mostly well uh, the Netherlands, Germany? Uh, are you focused mostly on, on Europe, or are you also present in, in the US? How do they compare? Actually, I'm, I'm quite curious to see how you're seeing the, let's say, the, the fight for talent or finding, hunting for that key early talent in those early stages of these startups. Uh, are there big differences in terms of finding talent in this side of the Atlantic versus the US? What's your view on that? Yeah, there are. There, I mean, there are a number of cultural differences around employment generally, and then more specifically, um, the differences in the investment types and communities on, on, on both sides of the Atlantic. So customer-wise, we have customers in, I, don't, I lose count of how many countries, 20, 30 countries um, globally. We, we work across Scandinavia, the whole of Europe, um, into the Middle East. We work in North America um, for, for our clients. Um, but there is a big difference in um, Europe in terms of the, of course, a lot of this is around um, employment laws, which in the US are quite lax. And you effectively, you can, even a CEO can generally leave a, a business with two months, sorry, with two weeks notice. <laughs> and in, as you may know, in Germany, you know, sometimes the notice period can be six or even yeah, nine months uh, before you can, yeah, which is substantially different. And that's one of the cultural things that we've supported our clients with because we, we work with a few US companies moving to uh, Europe. Uh, ChargePoint was a good example of a major e electric vehicle charging infrastructure company. And uh, we supported them when they first came to Europe with a couple of uh, strategically important hires in Germany. And they just could not 
fathom at all or get their head around the fact that they would have to wait six months for, for this employee <laughs> to serve their notice. <laughs> they, it was just, you know, the, it, it was comical to them that what, that would be the case surprise. where yeah. in the U.S., <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And uh, in the US, it is typically two, two, two weeks. But the big thing, I think, you know, relevant to your point of investment is that um, the ticket sizes and the, uh, and the bets that are made in the US are so much bigger. So, for example, another company we worked with to build their team in the US was an energy storage uh, battery developer. And uh, they were only two people, but they received 100 million in funding. <laughs> yeah. uh, so you can immediately go to market with 100 million and do some, some serious uh, impacts in the marketplace and hire some seriously uh, talented individuals. Um, of course, some of those deals have, do happen in, in Europe. But often those deals are now uh, 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 smaller ticket sizes, particularly in the early stages of a sort of a, a seed or an ABC round, um, where those ticket sizes might be you know, one, two, three, four million. Um, so uh, that's a big difference. And of course, that does impact on what you can do as a founder in terms of how quickly you can grow how quickly you can scale your team. So there are a number of cultural uh, and employment differences between North America and uh, and Europe, totally. um, but, but particularly led by yeah the, the, the appetite for risk and the uh, size of deals that are done in the US typically being substantially higher. Which brings me to, to the point. I mean, I think that everyone is aware that climate change and even climate tech it has entered the conversation. I think that, well, this year alone has brought multiple calamities, let alone COVID, but, but in terms of fires uh, everywhere in, from Australia to California, hurricane season, like w world records and obviously temperature rises. Yeah. So have you seen uh, changes in the, for example, speaking uh, about the VC industry in Europe, uh, are they now like, up in their game in terms of what they want to, to invest in comparison to the U.S., supporting those founders in, in these clean tech technologies. How do you see the, the, the landscape uh, evolving here in Europe? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think there is now an, uh, one of the big differences. I think there's always been, certainly in my experience, some very focused VCs uh, and angel networks, very focused on climate tech and clean technologies, and they still exist, and they do, do, do and a number of them do it incredibly well. Where I've seen changes in the last year or two has been really led from the likes of BlackRock and some of these massive global financial institutions who are divesting of their fossil fuel assets and 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 are committing to only invest in in cleaner uh, technologies and uh, types of more sustainable businesses. So right the way from these huge entities divesting of fossil fuels and we've seen the um within the corporate community the likes of google and apple and all these uh, um, huge tech companies committing themselves to going carbon neutral and to, uh, to to using only renewable energies so there's been a real drive from these huge entities which has filtered down i think and uh, whilst the VC community, I think, has been you know stable and, and and notwithstanding COVID, has still been very active. Um, what we're starting to see, I guess, is more private equity uh, money and more institutional investment. Um, we mentioned Sun and, and and another client of ours, Lime Jump, both were acquired by Shell, for example. Um, so I, we're seeing, or I'm seeing, much more institutional investment. Um, uh, from CVCs, if you like to, be, to refer them to corporate uh, VCs, um, and the more sort of larger ticket 
private equity type of companies uh, getting involved as well? That's that's a very interesting point. So I guess for your information, so I, I come from that world, from the fossil fuel world. So I spent some time in, in Total and other oil services uh, companies. Uh, I'm still working uh, in one at TGS. Yeah. Uh, and, and there has been, yeah, we, we do feel it, the massive shift. We do see the appetite kind of obliged because of the societal pressure and investor pressure of all these uh, super majors, especially, especially here in Europe, uh, to, to go in, into the renewable sector. Uh, in terms of talent, though, I think that since you, you are uh, right within the, that sector, have you noticed a big shift? Because when, when we, we talk to the young generation, even not, not as young within the, the oil and gas sector, the, there is a, a normal nervousness about the future of their work, mm -hmm. what their, you know, the, in general, the future of energy looks like for them. Uh, are you seeing a lot of transitions? Are you seeing a lot of people from the traditionally oil and gas activities uh, looking at and even joining some of these startups uh, how are you seeing that is that kind of a niche sort of pool of people or are you seeing actually a, a massive exodus I, I wonder what 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 your view of that is yeah no absolutely i think we all know and see that from uh, i guess we're on gen z these days you know the the, the sort of the younger postgraduates are certainly eager to join a more sustainable environment they're much more conscious of these things but what we've again really noticed in the last few years is people who are in traditional uh, or sunset industries like the automotive sector like the oil and gas sector who are looking for opportunities to join um, the clean tech or, or the sustainable um, world because they want to make an impact. I think a lot of sort of uh, older generations are, I guess, led by their children, maybe putting pressure under them <laughs> to some extent. But we certainly have people who are long in the tooth and very experienced, very capable people within those industries who are coming to me and saying, listen, you know, I've, I've, my children are badgering me for working for a fossil fuel company. I'd like to do something more um, impactful with my time and my career and my talents. Uh, how do I, you know, move into a in, into a more sustainable sector? And it's a it's a challenge because there are some supremely talented individuals, as you would expect, within those traditional industries. And um, sometimes there can be a reluctance within the clean tech, climate tech community to look at people outside of uh, the the obvious channels because. Maybe there's an element of um, us and them. That the, yeah. you know, someone who's a fossil fuel type. I think I think that's changing. There was certainly an element of that a number of years ago, but now we're seeing the oil majors and others more active in the sector. I think that's decreasing a little bit. But one of the big challenges I think is um, for people who've been used to working in big corporations have an awful lot of, I'm not saying that life is easy or jobs are easy because everything is challenging, but they have an awful lot of support, an awful lot of structure, an awful lot of process around them. And many times they get very frustrated and bored with this. Um, but startup world is very chaotic, very really. It's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very different uh, environment. And they, there's two elements to that. One of which is, <clears throat> I think for many people, there's an appeal to working for a startup if they haven't done that before because they lose the structure that they feel inhibited yep. from and they feel 
you know, even at, and at the extreme level, they feel that startups are all about dress down days and, and bean bags <laughs> in the office. And uh, while some of those things exist, of course, it's that's not what it's all about. And 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 we're very careful in the work we do to assess that particular type of scenario. But I have spoken to a lot of founders who've hired what they believe to be very clever, very intelligent, very capable people who just have not been able to adapt to the, the startup kind of the uncertainty and the ambiguity you think yeah exactly you're wearing a number of hats and what you're doing today may be different tomorrow yeah. and and even the business may change direction or pivot uh, during your your period of time so um so there's an element of yeah. that um but that said you know we've worked with uh again Lime Jump is a good example of uh, of a client that I mentioned before. So we hired the new CEO um, uh, there, who came from Gazprom, from a sort of a, a, you know a big utility major uh, in the US in particular. We've worked with and helped a number of people from the oil and gas sector move into uh, energy storage uh, companies. So it does happen, um, and increasingly, I think that needs to happen because it's a big talent pool. Um, and of course, the, there's exponential growth in clean tech, and, and almost like an opposite exponential decrease to some extent in the oil and gas industries, particularly with uh, the, you know, the acceleration of things through the pandemic of, of, of reducing demand and all. So um, we need to do more of that, but it's not always so straightforward as, uh, as it could or should be. Um, there is a, often a disconnect between people's expectations of what a startup yeah. is like and also from the startup's point of view of the, the of, of the capability or the talent that they can get from uh, a traditional uh, say in, industry person very interesting comments uh, and i wonder though so if you were to advise that 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 pool of people that are either considering transitioning or that have been obliged to transition because either they have been made redundant uh, or furloughed uh, so what, what would be the core skills that you could see or, or have already witnessed uh, are transferable for those people to say, hey, you could actually be quite successful in another complete environment where ambiguity and uncertainty, et cetera, are part of the day to day? Yeah, I, I would say for people that um, some sometimes you have to connect the dots for, uh, for an organization. It may seem to you obvious that your skills are transferable. But um, it may not always be so obvious within the startup where you have, you don't have big HR departments. Typically, you have a you know a founding team. They've got many challenges. They're wearing a number of hats. They might see a CV and they make some assumptions. So it's important that uh, if you are looking to transition into the clean tech sector, you, you you make very obvious the correlation between what you've done and, and and the potential new role. So for example, if you're an excellent project project manager, it doesn't much matter if that's a, an oil and gas project or a telecoms project or a, uh, a renewable energy project to some extent the skills and the processes are and the thought processes are much the same um so it's really about drawing out those uh, relevant experiences and make it very obvious to any company that you're approaching um where where that transferable skill can come in yeah no that makes sense uh, maybe i wanted to touch uh, quickly uh obviously it's 2020 we're recording this at, at the end of, of the year uh, COVID. So for you in particular, your, your business, how has COVID affected the way you work? Uh, has it made you a better professional and, and even the way you, you're dealing with, with your clients? Uh, what would be the long-term um, 
impact of COVID in the way you're doing business currently in, you know, for example, executive search and even within the larger, you know, clean tech environment. Yeah, it's a very interesting one and there's lots to be changed. There are many, many positives in terms of working processes that have come from this pandemic in terms of people realizing that flexible working, that working from home and remotely uh, are not just something you could do on a Friday afternoon, but is, is a way that you can, you know, you, you can actually operate in this way, not for every role, of course, if you're working in a, in a lab, for example, but, but more often than not, it's a, it's a positive way of working. Um, it can help with, you know, uh, if you are insisting on somebody's in an office, then your talent pool by definition is is, is shrunk to a commuting distance from wherever that office may be. If you're now open to more remote working, then your, your talent pool increases. So th- there are many upsides, I think, to, 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 to the... Um, to this situation. Of course, on the flip side, we know it's more difficult to manage people and we have to be more cognizant of people's mental health if they are working. Even if it's not a lockdown, you still we're still social animals. And if you don't interact with your colleagues and associates, of course, that can be a that can be a challenge. So um, that there's much to be done. But um, we found uh, and I think going back to your point of the whole clean tech sector, one of the things that was kind of a not an in joke, but an in um, conversation was that we all met at these various conferences around the world, and they were all valuable trips. And uh, but you know, last year, for example, I took fifty yeah, flights okay. to various different business trips, uh, and uh, we had to, you know, at my company we have a, an orchard, we plant our own trees, and and, and we we offset all of our uh, activities as a business. Um, but that is not really a long term solution. It's it's you know, of course, it's a good thing to do, but it's not really the long term solution. And when I meet at conferences. Is we had these same conversations with people. Isn't it a shame that we have to meet in X, Y, Z, and we're traveling all this time? So, um, I think the the lack of co- I think hopefully we'll get back to conferences because a lot can be said for the fa- you know, literally the face to face interaction. But I think what we have realized is we don't have to be so uh, we don't have to travel so much. We don't have to ha- have people uh, jumping around the world on airplanes here or there and everywhere. I hope that when things do become back more normal. Um, we, we won't go back to exactly how it was before. And I, I have a feeling that would be the case because we have realized that we can do so much work um, remotely. So, for example, we just recently hired a, a CCO for a London-based business and hired the candidate from California uh, to, to relocate even during COVID. And uh, we never met, although I knew the guy for a while, but we, we never actually physically met during that process. And uh, that's clearly very unusual for a, you know a, an executive hire that either we would not meet the client and or our, our client wouldn't meet the candidate either. And uh, I think we've realized that whilst you wouldn't necessarily always do that, th- there's much more that you can do remotely than we previously uh, thought possible. And, and that uh, as much as uh, the, clearly the increase in use in Zoom and various other platforms does have an impact in, at data centers on energy use, uh, it clearly does decrease the amount of traveling through um, cars, planes, and uh, uh, and other methods, which is clearly a positive thing. So, absolutely, I think that it has opened new ways of collaborating. And I've seen some statistics. Apparently, travel. Some some companies say that won't won't come back. It will be reduced by you know thirty percent at least when yeah, things are normal again. But but quite interesting. No, I, I agree with those with those points. And maybe to to wrap up. Uh, obviously, you have interviewed. A lot of very interesting people and profiles. I don't know if you could you could distill in, in one or two ideas some of the main 
lessons that, that you've gathered and learned and even applied from, from those conversations, from those people that are at the forefront of, of innovation and, and that are creating solutions for, for the climate tech and clean tech. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the joys of, as you say, 65 episodes, you know, 65 entrepreneurs, probably everyone has come from a slightly different background. Some are academics and PhDs, some were left school without any education and, and everywhere in between. So there's, there's no one type of entrepreneur. But what I would say is that uh, what, what's pretty uniform is a genuine passion for solving a problem which has a bigger impact beyond their financial aspirations. So you it, it is obviously within clean tech and climate tech, people are genuinely driven by producing a solution. The fact they may or may not get rich from the back of that is is, is clearly a, a better to get rich than not get rich, but the, there's a real dri- you know, values-driven uh, element. Yeah. And, and the other thing, which I guess would be uniform of any uh, entrepreneur or, or, or you know anyone who wants to, to succeed is a real genuine resilience um, because any startup is... Is, is chaotic, it's challenging, and, and never as is expected. So resilience is really a key that's come across. And quite often people that I interview have come either from a, a, you know, a sporting background or, or they've always shown competitiveness in other areas of life, which is, uh, you know, gives you that kind of resilience. But equally, what's in, what's in, what I love most about our sector as a whole is an awful lot of feeling of collaboration you know, the rising tide rises all boats. So even for competitors, there's quite a lot of support, interaction and and, uh, and support for one another. So there's an awful lot of, uh, yeah, reaching out to people and being fairly collaborative uh, and, and branching outside of your silo or your own business to, uh, to find solutions. And I think that's one of the things that uh, I won't say is unique within clean tech, but certainly I found it much, much more prevalent since working in clean tech, that there is this openness for um, sharing of ideas, of sharing of uh, of um, support, even for people who technically might be a competitor of yours, and uh, that's um, that's pretty pretty cool. But um, if, if that sort of answers your question, it's it, it, yeah. it, resilience, collaboration, and uh, and and passion and values are, are, are things which are pretty uniform amongst yeah. anybody that I've worked with successfully. Totally, I like that the spirit of collaboration that. It seems right that everyone is working towards the same goal of decarbonization and bringing new solutions, better solutions for the energy landscape of, of the world. Yes. Really. So maybe to a final word, uh, what podcast and what book would you recommend to, to our listeners to start their journey on, on this climate tech, clean tech, what would you recommend for, for, for us here? Yeah, no, good, good question. It's, it's one I to, to use and it's, it's interesting to have it thrown back at you. Um, <laughs> I, I think uh, Gerard Reed's uh, The Energy, uh, energy um, podcast is, uh, is very good. Uh, Jigga Shah, The Energy Gang is, uh, is a, a good podcast. Um, Bookwise, I read so many um, both business and uh, and sort of industry books. Um, one of the ones most recently I've uh, really enjoyed. It's quite U.S. specific, but it just shows it's very instrumental about the transition from the old uh, energy networks to the new. And it's a book just simply called uh, Grid, and uh, it's a U.S. book. I'm trying to think of the author for you. Um, okay. Yeah, and it's sort of a, around the. Um, Basically, just saying how 
porous state the US grid infrastructure is and just how much work needs to be done and uh, how much investment, even if we were to continue with oil and gas, the, the, the grid in, in itself, the transition network really needs to, 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 to change significantly. And um, yeah, that's really interesting because sometimes you think about and you hear accusations of it's going to cost us an awful lot of money to transition to a, to a cleaner really environment. Well, um, the, yeah, the reality is that a lot of the stuff that we use both in Europe and the US is, is 100 years old, a lot of this infrastructure, and it's uh, it's already creaking at the seams. And um, it just highlights the fact that, yes, there's a lot of investment that needs to happen, but that's that would be the case even if we didn't go down this uh, clean technology or climate technology route. And uh, I think that's something which is uh, quite important. I've really enjoyed reading that book. Great. Well, we'll put the, the notes uh, at the end of this, of this episode. Uh, well, thank you very much. It's been a very enjoyable conversation David thank you very much yeah no it's great to uh, to join you David and thanks for answering uh, the invitation yeah, no worries thank you if you like this episode please subscribe and give us a like it really is important for us this episode was produced by Julio Cesar Fernandez